over uh, the past two weeks, I have talked to 10 different people struggling with clinical depression, multiple parents whose children are experiencing anxiety to the highest of levels, pastors who are contemplating suicide for the first time in their lives, and friends who've lost loved ones to COVID, another few friends that have been diagnosed with serious illness. And that's just my personal relationships. And so when you throw on top of that a quick read of The Economist every morning and then 10 minutes of watching the news in the evening, you really feel quickly like the world is on fire, don't you? Or maybe not. Maybe it always has been. And we just have more access to technology than never before. And And so we just don't have the capacity and the competencies to process through all of it emotionally and mentally. Regardless, for most of us in this room, I know for most of us that just came from, I just came from our Sunnyside congregation in West Queens, for most of those people in that room, for those of you at home right now, there's some rubble in our lives. There's some spaces and places that feel like they are beyond repair where there's serious brokenness and unanswered questions that we really want answered. For many of us, it's our mental health, which is unraveled. For some of us, it's physical, where we put on that quarantine 15 and don't know how to get rid of it. For many, it's our emotionally unhealthy rhythms. Joblessness, singles have been more lonely than pretty much ever least in their lives, it's hard to connect with people. And so there's rubble. But if you are like me, you wake up on a Sunday morning in a New York City fall, which just hands down is the best season that we have. You wake up on a sunny Sunday morning, kids are starting to go back to school, some of us are moving back into our workspaces, and there's just a, there's a deep breath of maybe, just maybe, this is some space to begin to rebuild to normalcy. Maybe I can find some answers for some of these questions. Maybe there's some type of healing. Maybe there's some level of sustainability so I can stop actually just going, I just need to make it through this week. There's some rebuilding. And so we obviously, coming out of a Judeo-Christian worldview, look to the book of Nehemiah. Outside of Jesus himself, Nehemiah is probably the book for rebuilding. And in week one, we said, this man, Nehemiah, did something that is so unique and often not done by us. When we hit crisis, usually what we do is least here in America, as we pull our bootstraps up and we get to fixing whatever is broken. But Nehemiah did something different in week one, and you can go back to YouTube or our podcast, and you can see Nehemiah just stops and prays a very specific prayer that ended up moving him to productivity. But that prayer was important. Week two, we looked at some um, maturity that happened in Nehemiah prior to the rebuilding process. So again, we were just been looking at the pre-rebuilding process and we looked at some different things. We said Nehemiah did this thing where he actually was very attentive to his emotions. 
Usually in crisis, we go right to fix it mode and we're not attentive to the fact that there's lament and grief and anger and resent. I've had to be really attentive to the fact that I did not sign up to pastor people via Zoom. That makes me angry. But then, then he was also attentive to timing. He was very clear with his desires and what he wanted. And so this week, week three, we dive into dung gates and fish fences. And we look at some questions of life that are provoked by Nehemiah's leadership. We now actually move into the rebuilding process, asking three specific questions that are going to be key to rebuilding in a way that actually moves us from that survival mode. I just need to get through the day to a place of thriving where we actually get to enjoy life in New York City, where we go, you know what? I like living here. I'm going to be done thinking this might just be a season. I actually enjoy my relationships. I don't feel like they're all falling apart and emotionally dysfunctional. I enjoy them. I understand purpose with my job right now. Like this is the place of thriving that God actually longs for his people. And so question number one, where do I rebuild? Where do I rebuild? Uh, If I'm completely honest with you, most teachers and pastors, they pass right over chapter three. Why would you not? I mean, you listen to Brian Reed. It's like, what does any of this have to do with any of my life today? We got the Tower of Hundreds and the Fish Gate and the Men of Tekoa and the Dung Gate. You're like, I'm just trying to get my kids to school. I just need to pick up the prescription at Dwayne Reed and can't figure out how to get there. Like, don't give me Dung Gates and the Men of Tekoa right now. But what I'm gonna actually suggest today is that all of these cultural details have a lot to do with how you are trying to process through your day in medicine or through your day as a teacher or through your day as a parent or through this season as a single. Mark Twain has this great quote. He says, it's it's your job to eat a frog. It's best to do it first thing in the morning. And if it's your job to eat two frogs, it's best to eat the biggest one first. I love it. Mark Twain's silly quote was simply suggesting, if, if you have to eat a frog, do that thing in the morning. If you got something big and nasty and gross and difficult to do, get it out of the way quick so that you can move throughout the rest of your day with some type of clarity and ease and freedom that allows you to do all that different stuff without that other big, nasty, gross, hard thing lying in the back of your mind. They eat the frog quote has been turned into an emotional health technique that says, take the biggest, most important thing of the day, do it first. All else will come a bit easier. It's why Martin Luther once said, I have so much to do today that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. Because he knew what would be the most challenging. It wasn't his speaking engagements. It wasn't rewriting the scripture. It was pursuing intimacy with a God that he couldn't always see and a God that he couldn't always hear. This is what Nehemiah is actually doing here. You see, after Nehemiah returns to Judah and surveys the scene for three days, he pinpoints the necessities for his people. He pinpoints the the big frog 
He says, we got to eat these things now. And he says, so, so go to the fish gates, the space in the city that is closest to our docks and our boats where we get the sustenance for our life and make sure there's an easy and clear path there. This is a building block and necessity for life. Do it now. And go to the horse gates. You know those things we use for communication and defense against people that might want to strip dignity from us and steal what is rightly ours? Go to that space on the outskirts of the city and fortify a gate. Make sure the path is easily seen and visible, traveled. And that dung gate, that space outside the city where we usually put our own waste and the waste of our animals, that space that's downwind, like we need to make sure that that space is actually clear. We can't live amongst our mess as the people of God. And the sheep gate where we bring in and out the sacrificial animals so that monthly or quarterly we can actually celebrate who God is and who we are in light of that. Make sure there's a clear path there. Every one of these very obscure references refers to a necessity for a thriving people. These are building blocks. And if these necessities and building blocks for survival are not met, there is no way that these people are going to thrive on a day-to-day basis. That's why Stephen Covey once wrote, you make first things first. That's why Tim Elmore once wrote, You tackle the big rocks first. Nehemiah is identifying the most important places to rebuild. And this is important for us in this season, and here's why. Because many of you parents in here, you're going to start really worrying about your kids and how they're doing in school and whether or not they get into that G&T program or whether or not there is G&T at all. You're going to freak out about all that. And what you should be focusing on is the health of your marriage. And some of us in here are going to start rebuilding by getting on that dating site to build up our relationship game instead of signing up for therapy and pursuing those meds that actually might help your mental health right now. Some of us in here are going to start rebuilding by getting into the gym, and physical fitness is really important, right? Being physically healthy is probably more important for some than others. It's all relative, but, but a lot of us are going to do that when, when you should actually be connecting into one of these groups that Amanda talked about so you can have some vulnerable relationships that encourage you not just physically, but also spiritually and emotionally as well. We are addicted to immediate gratification, And so our psyche says, do the thing that's easiest first. But the question of where do I rebuild may be one of the most important questions we tackle in this season. But here's the fun. It's a new season. And God says his mercies are new every day. And so we actually get to survey the scene of our lives, much like Nehemiah, and go, what is the place? What is the place that if I tackle now will give me clarity and ease and freedom as I move forward with all of the other places, not just in my own life, but in the lives of others as well? Question number two, who should rebuild? Now, now this is where I need you to really visualize this boring chapter three. Right, because here's, here's what you got. You, you have Nehemiah, the cupbearer of the king, one of the most powerful positions in the Persian Empire, who comes now into Judah riding this battle horse 
with a whole posse, a whole convoy of people. He, in essence, has been given grant funding, government grants to rebuild. He has trees. He has tools. He has wagons. He's got support staff. He's got bodyguards. He's got all of it. He is the cultural elite with the education to make it happen. If there is ever a savior-type moment where you and all of your brokenness goes, they're here. This is it. And then he just begins to stroll around the neighborhood like he's Mr. Rogers. Real quietly, just looking, just surveying. And you're like, what, what's he doing? And then the second day, you're still in all of your rubble. And the convoy and all the powerful people are just kind of relaxing and lounging as he's still walking and day three happens. And then finally, it seems like something's happening. He goes to the middle of the city of Judah and instead of starting to empower all of his, you know, his, his, his convoy and posse, instead of saying, hey guys, it's time, let's save this city of ours, he then starts to list off all of the names of the different tribes, of all of the different heads of houses. And he answers our question for us, who should rebuild? The answer is simple, it's everyone. From priests to men, from women to children, from wealthy to the poor, from the larger tribes to the small ones. Now, I love this for a few reasons. This collective rebuilding, I like this for a couple reasons. One, it's really important to see the macro side of this, and then two, the micro side of this. The macro side of this is this technique that Nehemiah employs is dealing with and dismantling systems of power and privilege and pity. And so Mosaic, you know, we, we've been in this, this game a bit. We've been in this ministry thing and community development thing for a while. We got a community center over in West Queens that serves food to thousands of people a week. Man, and I've been in ministry for 20 years. There's been other times that we have distributed food and soup kitchens and all that stuff. And we will invite people that have material means to come in and serve some of those that don't have and are coming there to get food. And almost always what you will see, if not with one or two or potentially handfuls of those people with means, is they will come in and they will quickly put on some gloves and step behind that table and start serving chips to all those people who need some food and make themselves feel really good. And charity is important. And we need to do that, right? We need to serve people. But what can easily happen is there's a system of pity and power and privilege that's reinforced that says, as I stand behind the table serving you the potato chips that you really need, because they're so healthy for your restorative process. As, as I'm standing behind the table, I'm communicating, I don't have any need. I got it all together. But you do. And as people come to be served, they go, I need somebody else to come in and help me. When in the reality, both of us are made in the Imago Dei, the image of God, and both of us have insane need. And oftentimes, it's the people serving chips that are the most screwed up. And so as... Nehemiah comes in and says, everybody is doing this. One of the things on a macro level that's happening is that there's a dismantling of unhealthy systems of power and privilege and pity. But here's what's also happening, and this may be a little bit more important for you this morning and for me. It's communicating on a micro level that rebuilding is a communal thing. And so if I'll just be honest with you. The last year and a half has been really hard on my, my marriage with Amanda. Where it's, it's, it's been tough. 
and we find ourselves fighting where we don't know why we're fighting and going days without things resolved well. And part of that has to do with the fact that we've been trying to parent six kids in a small apartment with work and school and Zoom calls and And everything in me wants to go, I got to fix this because my marriage is supposed to be better than this. And so I got to fix it. So what do I need to do to fix it? I need to do A, B, and C. So Dan, come on, let's go. Let's fix this. But the rebuilding process is communal, which is why somebody like Melissa hears from me when I'm like, oh, this has been tough. We're not supposed to rebuild these spaces of our lives alone. It's why these groups are so important. And I know it's one of the last things that any of us want to do, especially if you have kids. You're taxed. Especially if your work is not a place of peace right now and it's hard. The last thing you want to do on a Wednesday night is to start engaging in new relationships with people that maybe you don't know at this point in time. But I promise you, There will be more times like this last season where we have places and spaces of rubble in our lives and we are going to need people to call into the rebuilding process of those areas of our lives. And so a few questions before I move to question three. What area of life seems to be most important for you to rebuild right now? What seems most difficult? The one that you're like, I will tackle that later. Let me do this thing that I I tackle every other day. What's what's the one that you just want to shove to the side and go, I will, when I feel better, when I feel like I got my stuff a little bit better together, I'll, I'll tackle that. What is that space? If you're married in this room, Or at home, I want to encourage you to actually be vulnerable enough to share that with your spouse today. If you're a parent in this room, and it's appropriate, I want you to be vulnerable enough to share that with your child today. If you're a single in this room, I want you to model something so important to our community that the church is supposed to function like extended family and reach out to either another single or another married couple and share that space today. Secondly, on a macro level, where are you helping rebuild both the city and our church? We believe in something called the priesthood of believers, where the Holy Spirit has given every single one of you in this space, whether man or woman, Gifts to bring to the table to mature the church of New York City. Where are you leveraging that for this body? You don't want to be a part of a dysfunctional church that has a man, a pastor, a man running around doing everything. It's no good. You will stay in your immaturities for far too long. Last question, question number three. Where should I rebuild? Who should rebuild? Last is why do I rebuild? Why do I rebuild at all? And quite honestly, so many of us are so exhausted 
And there's so much disorientation and despair that it's easy at this point to go, why even rebuild? When it comes to relationships, when it comes to vocations, when it comes to our finances, our emotional, mental health, like why? Like I'm too tired. Almost always though, the most important question is why? It's why the redundant three-year-old is so brilliant. Why, 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 why? That's actually how they make neurological connections and form into mature adults. They spend time asking the question again and again and again. Henry Ford summed it up brilliantly once. He said, I'm not asking what. It's like if I had asked people what they wanted, they, they would have said a faster horse. So the most important question is Why? Why do you need a horse at all? Then we'll get to the what. And so many of us in this room, we far too often ask, how are we going to rebuild? Like, I'm depleted. How are we going to do this? I don't have the capacity. I don't have the, the, the competencies. I don't have the relationships. Those people just left the city. This is like round three of those people leaving the city. I'm sick of people living in the city. Well, well, what do I do? How do I do this? Who do I do it with? Those are all important questions, but they're not the most important question. The most important question when it comes to rebuilding our relationships, our finances, our spiritual intimacy with the Father and the Holy Spirit and Son, all of that comes back to the why question. Why am I doing this? And this is where we have to get very, very clear as to how we approach the scripture in America. And some of you that are just moved to the States, you may not have to to do what I'm suggesting here. But for those of us that have lived in America or are from churches that have been highly influenced by the American church, right? So if you're coming from Nigeria, if you're coming from Korea, these are spaces that have been highly influenced by the American church. You need to at least be aware that you are coming to the reading of the scripture with a very triumphalistic, exceptionalistic lens. An American lens that says we win. We take the next hill. We pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. This is what we do. And so we come to a book like Nehemiah and we go, we love this guy. Are we sure he's not from Texas? It's getting it done, man. My my Texas friends, I, I didn't mean that. I did, actually. We have to do that because if we do that, if we at least are honest with our lens, then we start to see the faults and failures of this man too. Because the why for Nehemiah was to simply bring glory back to his people, which was important. But this was never the why for God. We talked about it last week. Zechariah prophesied there will be the the city of God where the kingdom comes to earth and there will be a city with no walls and the purpose and function of the city will to be bringing all nations, all tribes and tongues in. This city will be a blessing for everybody else. Nehemiah doesn't do this. On top of this, by the end of the the story, Nehemiah is physically dragging people out in the street and beating them for not upholding the law that he's taught them. This is crazy town. We don't see any of that side of Nehemiah if we don't check our certain cultural bias at the door as we read the scripture. Because God did not say, I will make you a great nation and bless you because I think you deserve it, Nehemiah. 
Then say it. He said, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you can be a blessing to others. God doesn't say, I'm going to make you emotionally healthy because I want stable people. He doesn't say, I'm going to make you righteous and good because I want a good people. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you resources because I want a financially sustainable people. Jesus comes into the world and says, for those that try to find their lives for my sake, they're going to lose them. And those that lose them for my sake will find them. Which means if you actually put your life together in this season for you, you will never find yourself in a more disoriented, unraveled position. But if you approach this season and go, I need to rebuild myself for the sake of Jesus and Jesus' mission as he moves towards other people, you will find purpose and meaning like you never have. The gospel reaches us on its way to others. This is how this has always worked. A church that exists for its own sake will die. A church that exists for the sake of the others will flourish. Jesus dies to bring us life. And now we have the chance to die to our own agendas to bring others life. And so we go through this process of asking, where do I need to rebuild? Who do I need to rebuild with? And we do that not for our sake, but it's for Jesus and those that Jesus is attempting to wake up to his grace and goodness. There is no other love like this. He takes on the worst we have to offer and defeats death just so that we can be with him and be present to his presence. This is what we want for Roosevelt Island. This is what we want for the Upper East Side. This is what we want for Midtown and Astoria. This is why we exist. We don't exist to find ourselves. We exist to lose ourselves for the sake of Jesus and his mission. And so unless we move from survival to thriving, we will never be able to help others do the same unless there is some level of emotional health and mental health and spiritual health. How do we really follow Jesus into the world for the sake of others? We rebuild, but we rebuild in this season for the sake of others. We rebuild our lives and we rebuild the church and we rebuild the city for the sake of other people. We get sober for the sake of others' sobriety. We parent well, not so that our children are safe, but so that our children are a blessing to our neighbors. We pursue healthy relationships and holy dating relationships, not solely to find somebody that we love and like and enjoy, but also so that we model something different for the rest of the world. And so let me pray for us today. And let me ask that in these last few moments together, we would actually get to sense God's presence. We're the most educated church in the history of the world. We don't need more information. We need a tangible presence of God's powerful spirit. So let me pray. God, we are asking you to wake us up. 
God, we are asking that your Holy Spirit would not just dwell in those of us that have decided to follow Christ as King, but that your Spirit would also pour out on this place in a way that wakes our hearts up to you and your love. Jesus, I pray that you would bless this church. And I pray that it would be for the sake of the nations of New York. Just traveling and seeing how many churches are struggling right now and to walk into this space and see so many people collected to worship you is something special. And so I pray an anointing over this space. I pray that in the despair and the brokenness, you would speak to us in a new way. I pray in our exhaustion, you would speak words of hope and life. You are the one that continues to create order out of chaos. And so we are asking that you would give us the spiritual gift of discernment, God, and the courage to be honest as to where we need to rebuild right now. I pray, God, that you would give us the courage to tackle that which is hard, unless you want us tackling something else. We, we, are, we are set and orienting our affection and our energy around the, that which is toughest, that which will lead to life and freedom and ease with the rest of the things that we need to tackle in life. I pray, God, for community. I pray you would continue to cultivate this people into one that is vulnerable so that we might be able to actually rebuild in a communal way, not having to go at this thing alone, but actually being able to walk alongside of others and have others walk alongside of us in a way that is free and speaks a better word about your church, not just being an organization, but a family. And I pray that you would always melt and move our hearts with your mission, not as something theoretical, Jesus, but as something that is transformative. I pray that for those of us that are weary, that we would remember how much you love us and that we would look back on the moments where you have touched us, where we have felt your presence, and I pray you would do that again. God, we love you and we lift you up and we want our whys, why we do what we do, why we work where we work, why we parent the way we parent. We want it all to be found within your story, Father, within your heart, aligned with you. We pray these things today as your bride, asking that you would do what only you can do. It is in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we pray these things. Amen and amen.